Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. We are off. Suzanne Brown, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. Good. Well, Well, you've got a... You got a new, a new edition, ish. Yeah, there's, there's three of you, so that's that's going to bring some uh, some downs in terms of lack of sleep. Yes, absolutely, and just um, yeah, what a, a world changer in all in all the good ways. So um, definitely test your limits and your patiences and things that you never knew possible. So. <laughs> I uh, I actually think it, <clears throat> for some coaches, I'm definitely thinking you could do with a kid. That would really help you. Now I'm not mandating it, or it's not a criteria to to pass level four or something, but it it would be useful. Anyway, look. So um, so there's a couple of things. One is um, uh, it feels like we've done this podcast lots of times. I have to keep checking our back catalogue because I'm convinced we've done it. We haven't. Uh, second thing is. Uh, I feel really calm when I'm talking to you. I don't know why that is. Uh, you're quite um, soothing. And the third thing is, we uh, our in lockdown, where you helped me make some sense of my world, has um, had some uh, really, it's been quite profound, actually. It was probably my favourite hour of lockdown. I'm sure you've had more favourite ones with your family, but I'm sure it's like top 200. Um, so w- with those as an introduction, do you want to kind of, share your story and how we've ended up here. Yeah, so, I mean, thank you, first of all. That's really nice to hear. And, no, I remember that conversation very well, like we were just saying. And uh, I guess why we're here in terms of the what that hour was about. So how or, or just, you know, what, well, how did we end up here? What's your journey so far? What's your story? When did Rusty come into your life? Rusty came into my life. March 2017 uh, at Birmingham City Football Club when we were both presenting. Uh, The reason I remember that was I was a trainee and I was just finishing my doctorate. It was the year I was finishing my doctorate. Um, And so I got asked to present um, by Mike Dodds and Christian and Stu, who we all know very well. Um, And yeah, our worlds collided. So I was presenting there about uh, safety and certainty and attachment in sport. Um, and you were presenting and was a whirlwind, probably barefoot at the time, uh, with a beanie. Yeah. And 
start chatting. I think we um, we resonated on a lot of similar issues, and we probably had differences of opinion about other issues. So it all started there. Nice. And what came before that for you? So what what led you to being Doctor Suze Brown? Um. Well. A lot of time at university, probably quite self-punishingly. Um, but I think really and truly what led me into where I am, and I do often say this, I think it's a vocation. And I think this is the same for many coaches as well. It's not, you don't see it as a job. I think you see it as a calling in life. Um, and my personal background is I've definitely had my own um, family with mental health uh, issues you know I don't I think that's too broad of a brush stroke so to go finer I think it's about uh, how trauma affects people and not just the first generation of people that experience trauma but how it's passed on intergenerational and I think my life could have ended up in many different and outcomes and somehow I was actually thinking about this in anticipation of this discussion and I was thinking you know where are the other paths that I could have ended up what what are the other outcomes and and in some ways I've ended up on a path about healing and um, health but I, I definitely think it could have been about uh, other, other ways of illness and not so positive. So genuinely it's come about from many of my own experiences, probably trying to make sense of my own experiences, um, but also believing in, in genuine change so that you know, you're know you not a victim of your circumstance. Things happen, but it's what you do with them that matters. So that's probably why I'm, I'm here where I am. Uh, and how I've ended up in sport is a, is I think you've probably heard this a few times, but is, probably more by luck and by chance that you know I'm surrounded by people both my partner and um, his brother who are heavily involved in sport and it was around Sunday dinner discussions uh, and we'd just be talking about some of the athletes and I'd be asking questions and, and just thinking to myself how is it that um, there isn't more psychology in sport or more clinical psychology in sport and yeah, so it, it really was sparked from there. So I, I do a bit of both at the moment. I work in sport, but I also maintain my own clinical practice. So I get the best of worlds. Nice. I'm going to give a book shout out. It's called The Other Wesmore. And it is about two people born in the same road called Wesmore, single parent families, and the route one person took and the route the other person took. And it's... Uh, it's a pretty powerful book. Um, moment, is it? Yeah, and I'm also wondering at what point did you think you were going to see Mike Dodds at the side of the road that you went down? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got a great photo of Doddsy, and I think it might be at that thing where he looks a little bit like Alan Partridge. Um, <laughs> but uh, but both, yeah, both the Dodds brothers are wonderful guys and 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 uh, and, and great people. So. Why do you think that? So why do you think there isn't more psychology in sport? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, and I don't know if I'm the best place to answer it, you know, having been sort of newly immersed in sport. Um, I think there's I think there's a lot of um, 
assumptions and expectations and I also at different times this is not specific to sports I do want to emphasize that it happens in the NHS which obviously I've got experience of working in as well but I think it can can feel territorial at times so my mind goes to you know when you work in quite medical settings it can people can feel like this is this is my role this is my job and um it can end up being in silo rather than uh, joined working and rather than seeing how we can enhance each other's work it becomes uh, a bit more threat based and uh, how we need to preserve our work and how we need to preserve our value and so sometimes too many can dilute that or can be seen to be diluting that uh, so I think there's there's a lot of threat and um, also this isn't to say you know sometimes in my experience not just in sport again I'm really kind of keen to just say that that sometimes I think one of the nicest examples I've heard I guess from a coaching perspective is actually from Mike who talks about as a coach knowing when to not get involved not to interfere actually in what is a natural process and so sometimes psychologists can be their own worst enemies and they can get involved in everything and actually sometimes we don't need to do that we need to also recognize um, where we can help and where we can take a step back so I don't think it's just purely on the on the side of other people viewing psychology in a negative way psychology doesn't always do itself favors and it can it can really struggle to express the the value and the visibility that it can add to a team it can previously be often about you know you go and see the psychologist when there's a problem and that happens behind closed doors and nobody really knows what the psychologist does and that's as much about us communicating that and um, integrating ourselves in a team as it is about the expectations and judgments that are already there so I think both and I've definitely found myself falling into um, traps of where I haven't um, made myself visible enough and so you know I've sought that feedback and that's been the feedback I, I've been given from some coaches and I can recognize that and I can take that on board and then I can do something with that to change it so I definitely don't think it's just about you know, psychologists willing and, and open arms and sport not accepting them. I think it's, it can be both and. Nice. Uh, and with your work with Arsenal and with Birmingham, what's the, where do you think it has worked well? Where have you enhanced um, the, the coaches, you know, skills or, or some of the, you know, in, impact on, on kids in the environments as well? Well, look, I can't speak about specifics just for obvious reasons in terms of confidentiality. So maybe I'll keep it more, I will keep it more general at this, this level. I think one of the strongest things I've done it at times, and again, is it's still developing. It's not something that's a finished product. And I'm really keen to recognize that in myself is to foster those relationships to start by showing who am I before, you know, introducing what psychology does? And again, I haven't always got that right. And it's been through feedback um, that I've been able to then take that on board and, and make changes, make shifts. But I think initially, first and foremost, if you, it doesn't matter if you've got the best message to deliver in the world, 
you're the medium in which you're conveying that. And so if you're not doing the work on yourself and you're not able to foster those relationships, it'll fall on deaf ears or, you know, it, it doesn't matter how many times you try to say it. If you've not developed that and you've not provided a platform for that discussion to happen, you've not connected with the other person, it's all for nothing in a in a sense you're just repeating what you already know you're not you're not having any impact so I think it has to be for me always first and foremost about seeing the person meeting the person understanding what makes them drive trying to understand where is it as well you know also asking for permission before assuming that anybody wants help I think that's one of the biggest things that I've definitely learn across the course of my career, which is about don't assume that um, people see the same things in the way that you do and see them as problems. There's always some benefits to what people are doing. So you also want to understand that and, and then seek permission. Do they actually want things to change? Do they want your help? So probably that, um, in it, you know, not making my own assumptions and, and diving in. Nice, nice. And, and then, one of the things we spoke about beforehand, did you write Did you write down your kind of five rules? Did you? I have given it some thought. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So this was inspired by, uh, so I've been watching the playbook on Netflix. Have you, have you watched it? Uh, Mike had it on actually the other day and it's the Doc Rivers one, right? Is the Doc one? Rivers one, yeah, it's the first one. I've, I've actually been watching a lot of the All or Nothing. Um, oh, well, we can talk about that as well. Yeah, so, I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want to do your five things or do you want to go, do you want to talk about uh, all or nothing? Let's do the five things. We can come back to all of them. I'm writing all or nothing down in case I forget about it. Cool. So, so, so they got, they talk about their kind of lessons for life mm -hmm. type thing or what, what are the things that they're thinking about when they're doing their, their, their calling. Um, yeah. So what have you got? What's your first one? So my first one is, I'm not religious, and yet this is the um, quote that always comes to mind in this instance, which is, um, there but for the grace of God go I. So I think probably given what we said, said at the start, is um, I tend to approach most people, well, I think all people that I meet, with this, uh, in their circumstances, given what they've experienced, would I be any different? And I think I genuinely, given, you know, as I said, my own experiences, I tend to be able to take that perspective of not becoming an man. And I think this is something that can happen, whether it's, I think, you know, we live in a divisive time, uh, you know, politically, um, socially, but also in our own work and in our teams, and it can become us and them, whether that is a coach and a playing group, whether it is members of the MDT, it can always become an us or them. So one of my guiding principles, which is what you asked was, I think I enter into most and all situations thinking, well, if I was in the same situation, would I, would I not do the same? And it got me thinking about, and I don't know if you'll have ever heard of it, there's a really famous um, psychology experiment by Zimbardo called the Stanford Prison Experiment. They made it into a film. Have you heard of it? I've watched the movie. Oh, okay. I haven't watched 
community. I just know about the, the research and uh, the experiment. And so I think that shows really as much as we would like to believe that we wouldn't behave in a certain way. I think what it really revealed is that we all have the potential to behave in those ways. And um, we like to turn away from that. I think we like to turn away from the dark in ourselves. And I think there's something about really facing and embracing those so that you're not hiding from them, that actually you're aware of them. You don't act them out in, in ways that you're not aware of. Um, but yeah, so that would be my first guiding principle. It's a, it's a cool guiding principle. It's triggered me on a couple of things. <clears throat> One is the Doc Rivers. So I watched the Doc Rivers episode and went, I wouldn't have been able to do what he did. Like the way he dealt with it, I would have been really agitated. And well, I don't <clears throat> so essentially racist owner, leaked audio tape. He is a black basketball coach, <clears throat> but he says, if we walk away from the game, so they were talking about not playing the game and, you know, we're, we're going to walk. And he said, if we, if we walk away from the game, then he wins. And he was really dignified. And I thought I would have been really agitated. I was thinking Doc Rivers is pretty chilled. Um, I'm thinking fair play to him. He's, it was quite religious. <clears throat> the second thing I'm thinking a bit about is like, Probably as, as a coach, I'm becoming more and more mindful of listening to, to pronouns and how people describe stuff. So both in terms of are they kind of owning something, but also like this is my team or my people or, 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 or we won and they lost, even though it's the same team. But when we win, we say we and when we, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I've definitely got quite curious about that recently as well. Um, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? How much we distance ourselves. Just when you say that, in terms of how much we distance ourselves from, I think maybe that's more painful. So a loss, it becomes they, and there's more of a distance between that versus um, embracing the we and it being, um, you know, something that those positive feelings people are more comfortable with, you know, success and victory. Because it's not just positive feelings. I think there's a, a real reward there, isn't there, about... Uh, having ownership of that and something quite primitive actually in, in my mind about success and victory and beating your rival um, that it's interesting that that's what you're being drawn to so um, and, and look the Doc Rivers thing I haven't I haven't seen it I will watch it um, and it's it is you know sadly you know still reflective of what's happening today you know um, there is the Black Lives Matter movement I think we, I heard a description of um, racism that resonated with me and it, it talked about, um, you know, the travelators at the airport. Yeah. yeah. Basically treat racism like you're all on it. So you're all on the travelator. Some of you are walking in the direction, right? So those are the people that, um, you know, are overtly, racist explicitly racist they're headed towards that direction you've got people that are stationary so they're, they're being passive about it they're not challenging um, comments when they hear it they're still on the the travelator and then you've got people trying to get off it but they are still on it and so just this recognition that we are um, all immersed in a culture and a society where we are exposed to these messages 
And so for us to um, recognize that on, on many levels, we will all hold views that we should challenge and that we should be also aware of. Again, rather than denying they exist within us, it's often, you know, it's my belief that um, it's much better that we begin to learn about them. We become self-aware because it's, we can't change what we don't see. And so once you see it, you can do something about it. Um, but you know, denial does work for many. Uh, but it is, it, it you know means a lot of people suffer. So that's where my mind goes to. I don't know yeah. about acted, but it, that's what it conjures up. In oh, well, I look forward to you telling me about it. And then the last thing I thought about was, like, if we don't understand someone or know their situation, then how can we kind of? I mean, all, all behaviour comes from somewhere, and there'd be some stuff. You know, where, where when you find some stuff out about people, you go, oh, of course, that yeah. makes real sense to me now when I've just got this so wrong for so long. Um, okay. I think as coaches, we're, yeah, we're often thinking about the tech tech and we don't understand people well enough yet. Um, and then, yeah, I guess it's, yeah, it's just something that I'm, that I'm always considering when I'm coaching. And I'll be honest, like, I probably didn't consider it that much at the start. So if you look at your coaching chapters, you know, then the first couple of chapters, I was definitely, like, putting some cones in a really straight line and X's and O's. And, and, and the, 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 the current chapters, I'm sure there's more to come. They would be more mindful of, like, the people that are going to be, uh, I'm going to be interacting with. Yeah, the nuances and, and, you know, in a way, there's like a cycle, isn't there really? Because you could stay with the X's and the cans and, and you could do that. And rather than face, and this is something we talked about in that hour, rather than face the painful reality of having let somebody down, right? Having failed somebody, we can avoid that because it's painful to us. But the moment you accept that you can fail, and that you have failed, then actually that opens up a possibility. There becomes a gap. And so now you can start doing something to close the gap. Before, there's no movement because you're stuck. You're saying, this is how things are. And, you know, I have never failed anybody. And therefore, what I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing. In my mind, the moment you begin to say, um, and, you know, this is, you know I, I, yeah, I must say, you know, this is a lot of what Kerry Evans talks about about creating a gap the moment you do that then actually you've got the potential to move and so you're not static things aren't stagnating you open up potential but our ability to accept that we've failed well that's painful on many levels because not only does it bring up that failure it forces us to, and again our body will remember the previous times we've failed the grief that we felt about those failures it's not just the failure in that moment it means confronting all of the failures because all of the feelings will come up in relation to that. No, so I like the idea of creating a gap. Not one that's too big though, not a gigantic canyon. No, but, not like, But yeah, perhaps yeah. a small rupture. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there's movement and then you can review it again the next month and look for your next gap, right? This isn't about using it as a way to punish yourself and creating such a gap, a void that it can never be bridged. It's about, you know, where is the, the bit that I can improve and enhance on now? 
And then how can I do that again next month when I've achieved that or I'm working towards that? How can I refine that? How can I fine tune that? Nice. Um, there's a word you've used at the start and I was going to ask about it because it comes up in some of the kind of coaching literature where it's a, it's a, it's a word from your world and it's trauma. Mm. Um, what you, what what does it mean in your world? What do you think it means in the coaching world? Um, would you use it? I'm curious. I think language is really important. It's one thing that I'm learning and having to adapt to really quickly, actually. And, you know, again, having moments where my language, you know, I need to, to do better at this. I need to spend more time with different members of the MDT to know what language they're using and how that fits and how that can be integrated. Trauma to me is, if we're, if we're looking at, if we strip it right back to just looking at a human being, so it, two human beings in relationship with one another, and the earliest that this begins is often the mother-child relationship. So, um, that, that you know and I don't mean that as to any disrespect or to um to not acknowledge the hugely important role that fathers play because they do um but if we think about the earliest of this it, it's the the first you know mother baby mother infant relationship where this is is tested out and and often obviously with the parents that these early relationship uh foundations are laid down so trauma to me means that everybody experiences this because it's based on your needs being either delivered so your parent is responsive to you it's delayed because they can't see to you right now but they can see to you in five minutes or it's denied and we all experience that and these are the, like that's what you'll hear when you hear people talk about small t trauma so that our needs on some level will be denied at some point now again it's not the issue about needs being denied it's what happens to repair that so when the, the need is denied and a parent can come back in and uh, you know make sense of that you know, understand, empathize with the child about why they're now upset or why they're furious with them. When they can tolerate their, their child feeling those feelings towards them, then actually often things are fine. You know, actually this is that part of building resilience, you know, that, that buzzword that gets thrown around a lot. In my mind, that, that's what it's about. You, you build up these experiences where you realize that um, there will be letdowns, there, there will be failures, but it, it can be made sense of and you can repair it. When it happens on a chronic level, and I mean, you know, to extremes, and, you know, we read about this in the papers, it's the sort of things that we wish we didn't see, because, again, we all operate at, at some level of denial. We don't want to believe that these awful, abhorrent things happen in the world. That's when often we think about, you know, major T trauma. Right. And so whether that is a life event, you know, um, a catastrophic event, whether that is abuse, you know, sport isn't um, immune to this. Right. It happens. We know it happens. So when those things happen and it isn't repaired, it isn't made sense of within the context of a relationship that can be safe and um, can can receive all of those feelings that it conjures up. This is where, for me, you start to see steps towards uh, going down that different path. 
And so, like we talked about, we can always make sense of the behaviors that we're seeing, right? Even if they're not adaptive behaviors. So let's say the player that turns to alcohol or drugs or risk-taking behavior or impulsive behavior in the context of something that happens now, well, that's a way of them trying to do their best and cope with whatever feelings are getting stirred up in, in the context of what's happening. It's their way of avoiding often, you know, detaching from what's happening because that's their best way of coping. And this is where, for me, you can't, you can't accurately help somebody in the here and now without making sense of all of that. You can't, because what you're seeing here and now is often something that we, we think about in terms of psychology is the repetition compulsion. So what isn't resolved is repeated. And so people go about repeating lots of things. It's, you know, the same damn thing yet again, but it's, it might be in a different context or a different relationship. It might be with your boss at work or it might be with your teammate, but it's the same thing that's coming up time and time again, because people are trying to work through that trauma. People are trying to um, find a way to resolve it at the core so they don't have to keep repeating it. So I realize that's a really long answer to your question. Um, but that's what I think of when I think of, of trauma. And obviously there's many more layers to that, but um, that, that's, I guess, a, a starting piece. For yeah, and, and, and the stuff that came to mind for me was probably, as you've said, like understanding what came before, what might explain some of this stuff. Um, Probably it sounds a bit like you do a fair amount of sense making with people and trying to get them to see alternative perspectives and consider stuff. And but then it's also the support around this of, um, yeah, I guess of of helping people as well um, to repair some of this stuff. Yeah, because I think the, the sense making you know, we are creatures that want to make sense of things. And that is one component of change. I, you know, I think there's many, I don't think it's just about making sense of something because people will often say, I see what I'm doing. I don't like what I'm doing and I still do it. So I don't, I don't think it's just about um, seeing what you do, but that is a key point. And actually that is one of the points that I've um, talked about when you've asked about guiding principles one of the things for me is, you know, if you've got, um, and again, I don't want to just pick on coaches here because I don't think it's a fair narrative. If you've got a member of staff and it could be even a teammate that constantly may put somebody into the position of, uh, they're a difficult teammate or that's a difficult player or, um, you can't be bothered. He or she hasn't got what it takes for me until you're at a point where you've helped the person see what they're doing. And by that, I mean, they really see what they're doing. They don't just keep repeating a behavior, knowing it leads to an outcome that they don't like, but they have no idea why they keep doing it. When you've, one of the key things for me is, have you as a coach, as me as a psychologist, have I done everything within my ability to help them first identify what they're doing, Think about the function of it. So think about, again, the cost and benefits of, of continuing to do that. 
and then explored why it would have probably been life-saving and adaptive when it first formed, because often that's when it happens. It happens in our childhood. We adapt a behavior that does save us in that moment. So if a moment was too overwhelming for you to cope with as a, as a child, and you detached in the moment, right? So you cut off and you went into your head and that's what got you through. Well, at some point you needed that. Now, when you do that as an adult, what your partner describes, what your teammate describes is you're distant, you're unavailable, you're not here, you're not on the pitch, right? You can see how what was once life-saving becomes very detrimental to them reaching their potential. So have I done all of the groundwork before they can actually say they've got a choice? So once they see it, once they see what they're doing and they see the function of it, and they see the cost and the benefits, that's when it's their choice. Before then, it's not a choice. So in my mind, you can't just write somebody off and say, well, they keep doing X, Y, and Z. Have you done the groundwork to help them see what, what it is that they're doing? And so for me, that's really important to ensure that we're not just Again, I guess really saying to, you know, you fit here, your face fits because you'll go along with what we want in the team environment. And as soon as something happens that's a challenge, well, we get rid. We, we just don't cope with that here. You don't, your face doesn't fit. And sadly, I think I hear this all the more in a COVID era. You know, everything is about working in a lean way. Everything is about um if you're not pulling in the same direction, then you know, you're know you slowing us down. And of course, to some degree that's true, but are we doing everything in our power to help people see that? Which really does lead me on to the next one. Can I, can I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give Danny Barham a shout out. Birmingham City, the work he's done around biases and coaches not putting people kind of into boxes and things cool. And I just wanted to clarify. So when you said an outcome they don't like, is are you talking about, an outcome created by someone else, so like a, a punishment. So they'll often be. So I'm thinking of. I'm actually thinking of uh, Dennis Rodman on the on the last dance, where you know where everyone goes. He's a maverick. He's this. He's that. I'm thinking I would definitely want him on my team. But we're also as coaches going. Well, how would we coach Rodman? He's really looks like he's like not necessarily doing the stuff we. He's not that compliant, and he's doing some strange stuff. So lots of people's view is often, well, I'll punish him for that behavior. I think what you're saying is without kind of understanding it and doing everything you can to help them and to make them aware of it and to, so that they then have an intentional choice of whether or not they continue with that behavior. Yeah, whether they engage in that. And that's not about tolerating. You know, you take a stand for the healthy part of the person in front of you, you know, going out and binge drinking and doing drugs is not healthy behavior. You know, I'm not sitting here and saying you condone that by any means because that's acting out. And so that's, it's realizing that somebody is acting out as a way of regulating their system because inside that anxiety is so unregulated that they are pulling on what they've got available to them to regulate that. So, and, and then that's just the level of anxiety. Then you've got to move beyond that to think about, well, what's stirring up these feelings that are creating so much anxiety that they would need to regulate their system, over-regulate it through 
alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it might be, right? However, they're um, using things outside of themselves. They're relying on external things to regulate an internal process. So, yeah, I'm not taking, you know, I'm not in agreement with the behavior, but I think it's about understanding where is it coming from so that um, we don't just immediately, I mean, it's really easy to say, isn't it? You know, well, they're difficult. Well, that's easy. That is an easy thing to do. And it's a very dismissive thing to do. And don't get me wrong, there will be certain types of behaviors that will really pull in for a dismissive response because these are the patterns that have been happening again and again and again. So it's about seeing those patterns and starting to break them. So noticing when somebody pulls in for a dismissive response, it'd be really easy to drop him from the team, right? He's giving you all the reasons as to why you should, but it's the harder path to take to understand, well, what's going on here? And actually, how can we help him off the pitch because, you know, or off the court because on court, you're right, he's producing what you want him to produce. But are you, are you really invested in the welfare of that player? And, and something I, I, I'm, I'm going to pick up on, uh, and I guess professional sport like probably magnifies a lot of this stuff because of judgment and win-loss and it's in the press and you're on Twitter and all of that stuff. But actually something I remember, and I won't mention where or the player, but I think... It was that actually, I think you'd recognise that there was a, a, a player that wasn't taking responsibility. So when I spoke to the coaches, they were all aware that if player X starts to go they, and then actually at that point, there would be a conversation around, you know, who's, whose choice is this type of stuff. But I guess that's something else. When you're talking about like a, an interdisciplinary team is there's no point you know, as you know, me and my wife have this debate a lot, so let's talk about it. Um, where where d- dad might be a bit, you know, he might be saying one thing and mum's saying something different. Yeah, it creates a split, doesn't it? Yeah. That's the other thing, right? Because we've, you know, just because I want to be really popular with the kids, and that might be about fulfilling that need, right? You yeah. might be able to and say it feels really uncomfortable for them to not like me in that moment and that's hard for me to sit with that discomfort or you know I don't know I don't want to make assumptions about it but you know we're being playful here but you've you've hit you know another really important point there which is it will split teams that type of behavior will split a team and what I mean by that is you will get people that will take and and this is something I think you've probably seen me present on in terms of um, people that take a position of rescuing, so wanting to rescue, people that take a position of attacking, so persecuting the person. And all the while, both of those positions, if you're a coach, if you're a different member of staff, it doesn't matter, that leaves that other person in this position of victim, right? Where either they need to be rescued or they're going to be subject to attack. It doesn't put the person uh, into a position where they have agency, uh, we're looking at, and you mentioned it, choice. And so that's the other, I guess, guiding principle for me, is I don't assume motivation and will on behalf of the person that's in front of me. I find out whether they want to work on things. Because like you've mentioned, and this is exactly what I see time and time again, is this real struggle between compliance and defiance. And when, as a coach, you are 
as you've said, you know, there might be something about that person's creating problems for me because they're not compliant. If you have a compliant person in front of you, you've not got actually the person in front of you, that they're not there. You've got somebody who's appeasing and people pleasing. That's not the, the person that you're trying to, I'm sure, get through to, and that's not going to help them reach their full potential on or off the pitch. So I don't assume that somebody wants to work with me. And I also check out just because the coach has sent you here or just because the doctor sent you here, just because the physio sent you here. Do you see this as a problem? Is this something you want to work on? And if they say no, well, the healthiest thing in that moment is for me to say, okay, the only other intervention I might add is, and yet you've complied, you've come along. So is that a problem for you? Do you tend to comply with people? Right? And is that a problem for you? And again, if it's a no, well, then it's not something that, because otherwise you're getting into a farce, right? you're going along with this idea that somebody else needs to change something it's not their desire it's not so it will be defeated they will sabotage it and so why would you why would you engage in that in that ruse it's not it's not a genuine relationship i like that i also uh, i'm going to label my wife as a rescuer <laughs> i feel like i'm going to be bringing some confidence <laughs> <laughs> no, you won't. It'll be all good. It'll be all good. I'll I'll explain it away. I'll work away out. Uh, what's your second guiding principle? We got deep on the first one. Have we covered the second one? Yeah, we've covered a couple there. So yeah, the first one is you know about not seeing it as us and them. It's you know I could see myself in these situations. Um, the the second one I think really is about um, the the issue of. Well, we've talked about motivation and will. I, I don't assume that somebody has it. I, I recognise they'll often be ambivalent about change. So that's the other thing. You know, part of you know people want to change, and yet another part of them keeps doing the same damn thing that keeps tripping them up. So I expect ambivalence, and I really work towards um, building an alliance that is based on: Do you genuinely want to change this? Because if you don't, that's fine. You know, that isn't something I'm going to make you do. Um, the, I'm just checking over. Um, I guess one of the things that we've not talked about, but let's say I, I am working with somebody, and this probably does connect with people who say, oh, they're really difficult. You know, they're really, you know, all, all you get is the wall. You can't get through them or, you know, whatever response you get, in my mind, when I'm working with somebody, is the perfect response. I don't take what they've said as problematic in the sense that it doesn't fit into the answer that I wanted. Because what their response is telling me is it guides my next intervention. So based on whatever response they give, I now have a roadmap of what they need help with. So if, and let's make this a bit more tangible because I realise it can sound really... I was thinking about, like, let's imagine there was a 45-year-old man from Middlesbrough who wanted to lose some weight. Let's uh -huh. imagine there was this guy. and Because I was thinking about the change stuff and do I want to get... So when you said about I'm aware of it, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm aware I would want to look like Brad Pitt in Fight Club if I could. Um, mm -hmm. I don't yet. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> 
and so yeah i mean you, what you're saying is 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 it i mean sarah would you nudge would you you know or would you go look rusty it's it's just not the time for you at the moment would you suggest some habit changes what are your tactics no, I wouldn't do any of this. So first of all, I'd reflect the fact that you've got a conflict, right? Part of you says you want to lose weight and another part works against that goal and, and desire for yourself. Yeah, I've got a conflict. So is that, I mean, again, don't just agree with me, examine it for yourself. Is that true? You have a conflict. Part of you wants to achieve something for yourself and another part of you is sabotaging that. Uh, yep, that's what happens. So I, I eat way too much. This has become a counselling session. I'm enjoying this now. <laughs> well, well, so, but do you notice, right, as soon as we highlight that and we, we put the spotlight on that, one of the things that you might do is move away from that, move away from whatever that stirs up and make light of it, right? Yeah. Might be a way to hold it lightly and not address actually... The, the discomfort that that brings up in you. So again, I'd be first curious about this ambivalence and whether this is the only place that it shows up. Do you tend to set yourself a goal and then work against yourself? Do you defeat yourself? Is that a pattern? Right, and you don't have to answer this. <laughs> it isn't. Yes, what are you noticing? Because you're rubbing your chest, so what do you notice? Yeah, 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 I was noticing that uh... I was. I felt like um, felt like you were attacking me a little bit there and challenging my, you know, actually, yeah. do, I, do I do this regularly? And I, I want to go. No, no, no. It's it's just the diet thing because I really like yeah. food, but I want to look like Brad Pitt. Yeah. So part of you had an internal reaction, and you perceived me to be attacking. What happened? Because you touched your chest. So what was happening in your chest? Uh, I don't know really. It's, um, I'm enjoying your ability to notice my my micro gestures. It's strong noticing skills, especially yeah. in Zoom. So, 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 so as Zoom as Zoom heightened your awareness of some of this stuff, of you had to. I mean, you know, you were like really close to the camera, checking on me. Um, yeah, I, I felt it. I felt it. So, there's a few things. I've had a couple of things recently that have really stirred, like emotions in me and I'm really reminded of you at that point because you will say you know all emo emotions are, are they're not good or bad they're kind of telling you something they might be giving you a clue as to something um but yeah I was, I was a bit agitated then and so well, that's why I put my hand there it looked like it made you anxious to have some of those feelings towards me right because actually I'm stirring up the feelings by asking these questions so I'm getting a bit closer to you. So, and again, this isn't a therapy session. So by all means, we won't, you know, take it further than that. But it, it really then links to one of the other guiding principles about how I believe change happens and what I take into my work, which is in order to create change, you're going to have to stir up conflicting feelings in people, right? Because if, if they wanted something to change, and it wasn't a conflict, they, they would have done it already. So when we begin, and we can use this example lightly, right? But when I just challenged you, right? I put some pressure to you. You had some feelings about me doing that. Now, if I need you to like me, right? And I need you to 
uh, always like me, that will cripple your ability to be an agent of change because you're going to have mixed feelings towards me. Part of you will appreciate what I'm doing and the other part of you will feel really angry towards me because I'm challenging these habitual ways of, of your behaviour, right? Is that fair to say? Um, uh, this, yeah, I agree. So this is, so it's really, so I'm just, I'm going to talk about, so the playbook, which, uh, so on the tennis coach episode, he talks exactly, he talks about this. He says, you know, I, I need to believe that, I, I love the way you use the word always, um, that I don't mind if I lose my job. Because mm -hmm. I've actually got a, get into some of these conversations where there's where there's some conflicting uh, feelings going on yeah. so he takes over serena, uh, coaching serena williams and he talks about like his first meeting and he can remember it and you can you know, he probably remembers it because of the emotion he was feeling as much as the emotion she was feeling and yeah. uh, he just talks through that conversation of i actually don't think you're as good as you think you are and then kind of some her reactions. So he talks about you know, and the next time I saw her, she walked straight past me. She didn't even reckon, you know, she didn't even acknowledge me. She, when I spoke to her, she looked away, uh, and I said to her, you know, this is, this is not how we're going to do things. But yeah, it just triggered me on that, that really. And I think it's, uh, um, what I, what I see with a lot of coaches is like, they'll be they'll be rescuers, so they'll try and help all the time and. Um, or they'll just be on, maybe on people all the time and and just yeah. giving them that the, they'll say I'm a tough coach and um but probably without the recon maybe without the recognition of where the other person is and what they're feeling. Yeah, and and also you know it really narrows the complexity of this, right? It's not one feeling; it's feelings, right? You you had feelings towards me which are, again, some of them will be appreciation because I'm trying to reach through to the part of you who wants to change and do something good for yourself. And another part of you is having a different response to that, which again, you know, it's causing some anxiety in relation to that because I'm challenging what you're doing. And I think it's so important to recognize that this is, this is very skillful and I have gotten it wrong, right? I'm not sitting here and saying I've always done this well because th there's a difference between somebody who sees what they are doing as something they are doing versus somebody that sees what they are doing as who they are. And if you do not make that distinction, if you do not help to see that, that you are doing something but it's not who you are, people feel personally attacked. Right? People feel like you are attacking them rather than showing them the ways in which they are undermining and sabotaging their desires and goals. Right, So it's very important because I think people could very much, and it worries me in fact, that people might start to say, well, I just need to give conflict and I need to create conflict. It's not that. It's, it's really not that. This is about um, helping the person see there's a conflict within them actually if it's between you two you're really distracting from what's happening within them they can get into a conflict with you quite easily because it helps them avoid the conflict that's that's intrapersonal and it becomes interpersonal but 
in, in putting pressure like you saw to you, you will have those feelings towards me. Now, if I, if I am not comfortable with my own anger back towards you, right, about I want to help you and now you're putting up a barrier, I might overcompensate and start being really nice to you, right? That's gonna cripple the process. And you talk about rescuing, and I often think this can be something about the rescuer, not being comfortable with their own feelings of frustration because you want to help somebody else. Um, so it goes into overcompensating with you know, positive feelings and helping out even more. Or it can go into, as you're saying, that which isn't anger, aggression which is different, right? People conflate the two, they're very different. You know, a healthy anger and being comfortable with your own anger helps you to set a boundary, it helps you to point out, it helps you to say, look, do you notice, I, I, you know, I keep trying to invite you in here to have a look and you keep avoiding. It's not about you either being really super nice or you being aggressive. It's, it's you being comfortable with those feelings within yourself first and foremost, before you start trying any of this with anybody which would bring me on to my final guiding point, which is... Just okay. after, before you go into your final guiding point, so clearly supervision is a big part of what you do. So when you said you've made errors and you've got some stuff wrong, and I mean, you've got either someone making you aware of that, so you've got a, a coach developer, or you're videoing stuff and watching it back with someone who helps you make sense. Is that, is that typical in your world? Yeah, so that's my final point. It's almost oh. like... You're the perfect segue. We could be radio hosts together, Rusty. We're just in sync. Um, it is that I can and will fail. And so, um, but again, accepting that in and of myself has been a journey. It's been a process. I'm not saying that that comes easy to me because I set myself high standards and I want to achieve them. So I do a number of things. I I have my own therapy because that's about me as a person becoming self-aware, which is separate to coaching and coach developing. It's about my own therapy. It's about my own exploration of uh, my early relationships and, and what I have taken from that and ways that I might be responding implicitly outside of my awareness. Can I, can I just pick you up on that? Just because I've heard, I listened to a really good podcast the day on emotions and they spoke about, therapy at the end and I just listened to the Johnny podcast the other day Johnny Wilkinson on the high performance and but if someone said the word therapy I think it would freak some people out yeah so and then I think this is also part of like the the bit you asked about you know with psychology why is it not more prevalent in sport and maybe because people often have ideas about what therapy is and you know again we were talking about this just before we started it really is, as soon as you sit down opposite another person, you stir up all of those attachment experiences, the experiences that you had from your caregivers, often parents, um, or siblings, or, you know, it gets all stirred up because all of a sudden there's a person opposite you that's offering and inviting in an intimate and close relationship. And that's going to be anxiety provoking for most of us. You know, it's, it, the difference is, again, going back to that position of creating a gap, you either stay stuck and you don't progress, you don't move forward, or you recognize that and, and you're willing to 
explore it. And you know what? Therapy isn't for everyone. It isn't necessary for everyone. That's the other thing. You know, people that have had um, experiences of the repairs and, you know, I, I don't think everybody needs to be in therapy. That said, I think it's about self-awareness and most of the people that I work with, whether it's in a sporting context, whether it's in a, a clinical practice context, their life is benefited from being more self-aware. It's not the emotions that cause us problems. It's the anxiety that we get in relation to them and all the things that we do to try and avoid that. You know, when people come in and say, I am addicted to, or, you know, I'm addicted to alcohol. I have an eating disorder. I, these are the things that they're doing as a way of trying to cope. That's not the feeling that's causing that distress. It's often the things that they're doing that causes distress. So um, therapy for me, I know people will get freaked out about that. And again, maybe that's a question for them to ask themselves. What is it that they're, they're worried about? What is it they're frightened about revealing? You know, is it something about they might find out about themselves or is it about sharing that with somebody else? And it can be a combination, I think. When you, uh, so emotions you've referenced a few times as well and emotions um and, and feelings how would you simplify that to help coaches understand what might be kind of going on so we have core emotions that that's fact we respond first to emotion we, we add the layers of cognition after that's a fact Though, you know, often before all of this, there was the debate about that, whether it was our thoughts that come first and then our feelings after. That's been disproven. So we respond first and foremost via feeling. And again, some of that is conscious, some of that is unconscious. So it's almost like people first and foremost, I realize that's a hard task. And, you know, I've found myself in my own therapy saying, but, you know, I'm just not aware of it. And I'll be like, that's the unconscious. That's the whole point of it. I'm not aware of, you know, I'm a, I'm a therapist. I know this, I believe in this. And yet when you're faced with it, it's, ah, oh, it's a moment of reckoning and it's a, it's a light bulb moment. So first and foremost, we have feelings. Those feelings have been selected through evolution for adaptive value. So when you say they're not good or bad, actually in ways they are good. Right. Anger has been selected for a purpose. It is to help you to set a boundary, to set a limit, to say no, to have drive and energy to go after what you want. That's anger. We often confuse it with aggression. We think anger is the, the pub fight or the brawl that breaks out. That's not anger. That's acting out. Whether it's um, grief and sadness, right? people can feel really uh, conflicted about those feelings. We need to grieve what has been lost. And it's when we get stuck in that process, not being able to do that, that's often where there, there are problems. So for people that are just like, get over the loss and you know, that again, isn't helpful. If it were that easy to do, then we would do that. But you know, I don't know if there is a way to simplify it, Rusty. And I'm sure there is. And again, I'm, I'm still learning. And so I, I maybe I don't have a simplified version, but I think there's a real desire in sport and I understand why to simplify and at the same time I think there needs to be a recognition that we are complex human beings and not everything can be simplified and so 
the person sat in front of you can't always be simplified. How is it that you can help to hold the complexity? How is it you can be interested in the complexity, help them to understand the complexity, integrate it, process it? I don't know if it can always be processed. It would be easy for me to say, feel the feelings. That's what you need to do. But it isn't that simple because we, we pull on all of these different mechanisms to avoid the feelings and that's what makes it really difficult and we get anxious about them and that's what makes it difficult so it, it isn't simple it isn't necessarily easy but to begin by first and foremost recognizing that emotions are adaptive and actually the moment that you kill them off you're killing off energy and i've talked about this recently with um tom hartley about look at the energy it takes to suppress look at the energy it takes to try and not feel the feelings that's the bit that takes up your time when people get up into the head and they start thinking about what is it i should have done in that game what is it i you know they really start to ruminate about what it is that they've done often that's as a result of not dealing with the feelings feeling and dealing it's that they haven't done something with the feeling that got triggered because it made them anxious because they couldn't do something with it in the moment. And now they're sat spending all this energy ruminating about it. So if we just look at it as an input output, look at the amount that you are draining yourself of your vitality, your energy by all these mechanisms of avoiding. That's the simplest way that I can think of it. And look at how much energy people, I, I know people have when they have felt what's been avoided, what they've been fearing, and they're then freed up because they're not spending their time now having to go and drink. They're not having to spend their time getting distracted because they've got all this energy and anxiety and they need to put it into doing something to distract themselves. They, they're able to just be with themselves and have energy to put into creative pursuits. And this truly, I believe, is, is definitely linked to how people can be very creative. You know, people start doing things, you know, that is incredibly creative, whether it's artistically, whether it's in business, uh, you know, they really thrive once they're freed up. But again, it's not something just in sports. We as a, a society, don't value the role of emotions. You don't have emotional literacy at school. You know, it's not taught. It's shut down from a very early age from people around you, adults around you. It's, I think it's one of the saddest things that, you know, is, is currently happening in our society and why I'm probably passionate about changing it. Just uh, on the uh, point I listened to there, they spoke about a book called Emotional Agility. I think it would be, uh, it would be a good, uh, It'd be good, um, be good on the curriculum in school, wouldn't it? We'd go up there with parenting. I, I, simplified is probably the wrong word, but I think it's 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 helpful for people to understand that emotions, like anger, are helpful, yeah. um, as opposed to, you know, you get angry, so I'll get angry back at you. Um, I'm always thinking when I'm in a like, how do you stay so calm? Like, is there some energy being taken to do this? I think ways in doing that though, and this is really something that again made it really simple for me. And so this might be a simple way for coaches to think about it. Often we get angry 
when our attempts at connection are blocked or thwarted, right? When we do want to connect with somebody and we're not able to do that. Now, rather than seeing that as the person, again, you're separating it out, what I'm getting angry at or what I'm getting frustrated with is the different mechanisms they're using to keep me out. And we talked about this, about going in the front door or through the window or... Yeah, and that was, that was a game changer for me. Yeah. That was a brilliant way of explaining it. That actually, you, you almost want people to open the front door. You don't want to go and break in around the back. Exactly, right. And that comes down to that motivation and will. Do they have a desire to do something different? Are you breaking down their front door and telling them that you're going to be a guest in their house? Or are they opening the door to you? And almost thinking about those mechanisms as how many locks on the door do you need to work through before the door will open? Right, that's your job to help them see that. It's not your job to try and sneak in around the back or through the window or because you're gonna be an unwelcome guest and therefore you're not gonna get very far in your endeavors with them. Yeah, I've probably been an unwelcome guest way more times than, uh, than I can imagine. What about, uh, the other thing that uh, we've connected a bit about, so the Dan Hughes stuff around pace um, and around attachment theory, that was, as I understand, that was really looking at the behaviours of the adults in those kind of environments. So actually, how do, how do we behave as coaches or, or the grown-ups or the teachers? Or Am I, am I correct? Yeah, so, so my experience of this came from uh, working Yes, and I used to run um, parenting groups and it used the Dan Hughes model. So this would be parents that, again, you know, if we think about what we've talked about today, would be told to attend the group, that they've not voluntarily chosen to be there. And they're often there because they've been told that their child has an attachment difficulty. So that, you know, again, immediately that just conjures up in my mind all of these resistances that would naturally happen about anybody being told something about their parenting. Um, but it essentially is a model and a way of looking at your own early experiences in your relationships. So again, this is that self-awareness. What is it that we're repeating? And sometimes um, trying to avoid, so often people will talk about, you know, my mum and dad did this and it was really unhelpful. So I do the complete opposite. And rather than the person, you know, being who they are, they're defining themselves through who they don't want to be, which is still not helpful, right? It's not really their authentic self. So whether you're a coach, whether you are, um, again, another member of the interdisciplinary team, it's really about thinking about the building blocks and the foundations to your house. Um, where does that start? Why is it that you will respond in one way to a player and somebody else is having a completely different reaction to them? It's because it's triggering different things in us. And, you know, if that could be one of the takeaway messages, I think that's so important, right? It's, it's often about what it stirs up in us and then what we do with that, that we have agency to change. This isn't something that we are then passive to. The first step is noticing it. And then I think this is the bit maybe people often feel stuck. They don't know what to do with that. Like it feels hard to say, I really don't like player X at times, you know, especially if you're working with children, that can feel really hard rather than using it as information, right? That's really stirring up a strong reaction in me. What's that about? 
And so now I can try and use that rather than deny it, rather than push it out of me and, and pretend like it doesn't exist. Or I really like that kid and I'm going above and beyond here and I wouldn't do that for the children. What's being, what's being pulled for? Again, rather than ignoring it. I think we can be really worried about just, you know, looking at our own feelings that are getting stirred up and we're missing a crucial component that could really help us. Nice, good, good advice. Uh, now the serious stuff, all or nothing. Yeah. What have you noticed? Well, I don't think I watched this with my... I'm watching <clears throat> this as a switched off. You know, because uh, I watched the Tottenham one, and I'm just currently watching the Man City one. How can you um, watch this switched off? So you'll be watching this at home with Dan. He'll be telling you everything. You'll be kind. Of, there's no way you're passively watching this. This isn't Love Island USA. This is <laughs> this is home, this is homework for Dan. Come on. Yeah. So some of the things I've noticed, I think, are really can be really good at times are the clarity of message that's delivered. And maybe, again, it's probably because it's something I know I can always still enhance and improve in myself. So I notice it in others. So at times, you know, in the half team, and I'm not saying we see the whole of it. That's the other thing. We see what they want us to see. Yeah. But at times I've watched some of those um, halftime talks. And although you know whether it's jose or it's pep they've 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 focused on one thing they might have said it in a couple of different ways but the clarity of message the one thing that they've wanted to get across me has has been communicated and i think that's something that we can all learn from in terms of when we're under pressure we know that the brain can't cope like it would do if it was in a, a relaxed environment. And I think this is where um, at times we can overload and therefore not only do we dilute a message, it's too much. We, we don't know what we're doing with what, what's the important message, which was the one that we really needed to pay attention to. And so it's not effective. And so I've watched at times some of the halftime talks and I've thought, even though they've communicated that a couple of times in, in different sentences it's been about one thing the focus has been about one thing so that's one thing i've noticed that i've thought oh they do that really well actually nice what else what else have you noticed well let me ask you what have you noticed let, let's have a dialogue here so it's not a monologue um i'm not a big fan of their um you go positive i'll go um I, I, and, and i just don't like the, the the small classroom where they watch the videos um, mm -hmm. I tend to see Jose stood at the front. Once again, we only see bits of it. I'm thinking, when are the players going to do some thinking and run some meetings? Um, yeah. And because I'm then intrigued by why stuff they talk about on the pitch and it's the classic, but I told you that. They're then watching in the video room and they're not doing it. And, mm -hmm. then, and, and then the players are going, well, we don't do enough practice of games. And so I don't see enough... Uh, I'm surprised they're not running more stuff as players and I'm surprised they're not co-creating stuff more with the coaches because that would help with the, <clears throat> that would help with the language as well. Clearly there's, you know, Jose, I actually like some of Jose's kind of expressions because they're really not that English, but he has some analogies and some stories that, that kind of resonate, I think. Um, I mean, 
is symbolic, right? We do think in metaphors and analogies, and and so you, if I've I've definitely watched as a coaches, I have to say, and when I've given, um, again, it's been invited in when they've asked for the feedback. I've really said, you know, the way that you speak and you bring it to life in these examples is beautiful and keep doing that because it speaks to a part of us that um, we can grip hold of and it paints a picture and it's vivid. And so, I, you know, I love it when I see people speaking with metaphors and analogies. So I really agree with that. Uh, Mike Dodds does that well, <clears throat> would be my view, because he's still 12 years old. Uh, <laughs> I actually have the same. So in a business, I asked for feedback on someone and he said, um, <clears throat> he lets me be Thierry Henry and he's Jordan Henderson. And I was like, all right, well, tell me like, what's that mean? And anyway, and, we, and then we shared it with the, with the manager, with the leader. And, and he went, that's the favorite piece of feedback I've ever received. It's really memorable. I really, you know, it was about allowing this person to be creative while you kind of, provided the kind of the rules that it fits within um and he really really enjoyed it it was quite uh, yeah uh, what else am i noticing <clears throat> um I'm, I'm always curious about the managers and they're like the behaviors on the side of the pitch so how intentional they are and i've heard people talk about well they're like the conductor of the orchestra when the crowd's there but there's no crowd <clears throat> so i'm just interested in how aware, how intentional are they around that stuff? Yeah, it's interesting because we've started to say, you obviously know I'm a big fan of recording my work because um, I guess as a follow-on to, I, I don't just have therapy, I obviously do have what we call supervision. And again, I think that can have certain connotations in sport. It's, it's a given in our world, something that is deeply valued um, in psychology. And, you know, you, you know, you really seek out a supervisor that um, is worth their weight in gold, honestly, because it's your opportunity to make sense of and enhance your own practice. So I'll get to the link in a moment. But the, the fact that, you know, you've got all of this data, you've got all of this video footage and you're using it to enhance the, you know, you're running a tactical um, session and then you go back to the room and you talk about that or you're preparing for the opponents and I definitely haven't seen I'm not all the way through the Man City one but I haven't seen as we're talking about the coaches reviewing footage of themselves and the reason I say that is supervision happens in in different ways it's actually in the way that I practice in in the world of psychology uh, it's it's not conventional so there's there is um a bit of a, it causes a conflict in psychologists actually to video record our sessions. But the way that I look at it, when I go to supervision, and I've seen this because I, I've done both, I've not recorded and I've recorded uh, in my own journey of, as a practitioner, I can, to the best of my ability, tell somebody, my supervisor, what happened in a session. But I have all of my own mechanisms that I am defending against, that I am not aware of, my blind spots, the biases that you talk about. Until you've got the video footage, which is irrefutable, right? You can't disagree with that. That is what you said, that is what you did, that's the reaction that you had. I, I just think 
you could be having two separate supervision sessions because you can be providing feedback as to how you think it went, but you will always see that through the eyes of how you see it. The whole point of videoing as a coach, as a psychologist for me is this is just objectively the evidence. And if I'm honestly wanting to get better at what I do, I need to recognize what I I'm not doing well. And I need to recognize what I am doing well because I need to keep doing that. So it's not just about, that's the other thing for me, it's not just about hammering people and pointing out their flaws and their failures. It's about saying, did you notice when you did this with that player, look at that response, right? They are engaged, they're alive, you're connected, the eye contact is, is phenomenal. This is a profound moment of meeting between you two. So you know they respond when you do X, Y, and Z. So it, it allows that. But um, the reason I say that is because I haven't seen that in the all or nothings. Uh, again, it may, it may happen, but it's definitely something I advocate for, whether it's you know coaches or it is psychologists, to be recording your sessions. Yeah, I mean, and the irony is they probably had 100 cameras in the ground. Uh, so they would have had access to plenty of footage, and 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 it's and what you said there around almost like the cause and effect stuff. But actually, when I did this, it had this profound impact. And something I'm trying to get better at is like probably taking away the kind of meaningless confetti of praise that I'm <clears throat> I'm dishing out, <clears throat> and actually starting to notice more and, and and ask more about well, you know what what was valuable, what had impact, what was, and trying to understand those, those things better with, with people. Um, <clears throat> my sense is much more common to see that in development environments and performance. Yeah, and it's interesting because you used a bit of a structure there and you were talking about the, I think you mentioned, was it the motivational interviewing? And I know obviously you know Steve Rolnick and, yeah. and he great work here and he's probably somebody that's great that that can um i i think there's a process isn't there there's a, a furnace of which information can go through and it can start out very simple it can get very complex and then the ability is to actually um simplify it down so to reduce it at times it can be that and you know maybe sometimes i just can't do that i i get into the complex and that's where I like to be. I like to be with the complex. But there is a, a lovely way that he does it, which is around um, ask, offer, and it makes it made me think of that that you you are now starting to ask a bit more before maybe offering the praise, and then maybe you could ask again. But it, it, that's what came to my mind. Yeah, nice. Uh, and, and 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 here's my kind of final thought experiment. So, uh, Bo decides he wants to play a bit of football. Uh, Probably need a context of Bo's my son, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, um, Dan's going to coach him. So Dan's dad as well, which is like creating a little bit of tension perhaps. Dad, so this, okay, yeah, this is, yeah. So I, I thought you'd say that. So Mike's going to coach him. So Uncle Mike's going to coach him. Um, what would be your advice to, I mean, to any kind of, Sunday morning coach, knowing what you know and, and stuff about psychology and the brain and humans, um, what would, you could say two things to people, what would they be? Uh, 
good decision from Dan not to coach Bo, by the way. Yeah, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. Um, so it's that I'm not the best person to be asking because the person in front of you, your child, is the person that provides all of the information that you need. And so, you know, it, I, I'm genuinely not the person that would be providing the advice there. You've got opportunity and access to that person right in front of you, your kid right in front of you. So if you're present and you're engaging with them and you're attuned to them and you're noticing and you're curious and you, um, you're providing a space, so you're not always filling it with questions. Actually, if they want to come to you, that's fine. If they don't, they don't. That, that's, that's where the, the person is that, you know, that can give you the richest piece of information. It's not from some psychologist you don't know about. It's the person that's right in front of you that's your child. And, and I know we haven't talked about this, but it has just prompted this because one of the things that um, we talked about was the way in which that your own, your own feelings get in the way of that at times. And it, it does make me think of um, your ability to respond to the person that is in front of you in this moment now. And again, I'm saying this from my own failures. I have had sessions where I will review the videotape because that's the other beauty about it. I mean, how can you really deny when you're telling somebody, can I film this? Because it means I'm going to give you double the time. I'm giving you double my efforts and energy to try and provide a better session for you the next time. People really feel that and they appreciate that. I have through, again, learning through my own errors, saw, okay, I could have done this differently because uh, I missed this in session. And so I've gone into the next session and that's been at the forefront of my mind. And I haven't responded to the person that's in front of me because they're not in that space anymore. I'm, I'm harking on about something that happened last week, right? I'm looking out now for something that happened last week. I'm not responding to the person that's in front of me. So already we're misattuned. And again, it's, it is being humble enough to even then, you know, and I've definitely done this, go back in the following week and say, so I watched the video last week and I owe you an apology because I'm going on about this and I'm missing all these attempts that you're making in the here and now to show me what you need help with here and now. So I guess the analogy, like the, the thing that comes to my mind is the player that might show up late to preac and then later on you see them in the gym and you're caught up in the fact that they've shown up late to preac and you're not responding to the person that's right there in front of you in the gym in that moment and, and i just think we miss so many opportunities and I, I i just know that from my own experiences and it's something i you know definitely look at and that's what makes me think you know you don't need to listen to some you know respectfully to myself you don't need to listen to me you need to listen to the person that's right in front of you which is your child and that they're the ones that will provide you the best information great answer a, a much better answer than a question and, uh, and and that person that turned up late to pre-ac which i presume is pre-activation yeah. if they turned up early the week later they might be in a completely different uh, place yeah. Yeah. But if we're relating to the person last week, then we're not responding to the person in front of us. We're relating to the past or we're relating to the future. And, often, you know, we just need to be in the moment. Yeah. Easier said than done in team sports. Very much. So, yeah. 
yeah. There's then kind of interactions between other humans and to oh. enter into this maze of complexity. It is, and we're all fallible, and, and we can recognise that, and and you know show ourselves the compassion there, and and still try and do better the next day. Yeah. Um, if I was going to go and get curious about some of the stuff you mentioned, and and I wasn't really that good at reading long words, um, which I'm not. Uh, <clears throat> is there any places you would point me towards? Hmm. So, as in, you'd prefer podcasts rather than. No, I'm cool. I'm cool with books or podcasts or articles or, you know, yeah. or if there's some seminal work that you would go, this is, you know, this is really. Yeah. So I mentioned, obviously, throughout this, Kerry Evans, he's obviously got a book called Perform Under Pressure. Um, I think in terms of trauma, um, Gabor Mate speaks beautifully and profoundly about trauma and addiction and a lot of the work comes from addiction um, you mentioned actually um, emotional agility and that's Susan David's work um, so there's definitely Ted talks on that um, is she good is she a big hitter in the psychology world she I just listened to a podcast and it was it was really uh, it got me thinking yeah, I um, I don't know that, but you know, I saw her on some TED talks. I really liked what she was talking about. Um, it, it resonated with me. So I don't know in terms of her work out there. I think her talks on TED, you know, because you have to be quite concise and to the point, are to the point. Um, who else? There's um, a great, oh, his name's escaped me, but there's. Um, a great book on organizational change i'll get i'll get the link to you so you can put it up with the podcast um and there's quite like some practical steps of making the unconscious conscious so some really nice ways of of uh, taking practical steps through to do that because i know this can feel a bit uh, abstract at times um there's many people in terms of uh, attachment, you've got John Bowlby, you've got Mary Ainsworth, you've got uh, Donald Winnicott. Um, and again, there's short books, there's long books, you've got Melanie Klein to think about our relationships to ourselves and to others. Um, those are the people, I guess, more recently that have influenced me. So one of my mentors is Patricia Coughlin. She's got some fantastic YouTube, um, like 15, 20 minute clips on everything that I've probably been talking about here, our feelings, our anxiety, the way that we defend against them. So I would really highly recommend her. Nice. And if people want to reach out to you, where do they find you, Dr. Suze Brown? Um, so my website, um, Twitter. So my website's Emotionally Connected. And uh, yeah, I am on Twitter. Um, not that I'm an active user on there, you'll, you'll notice. Um, but I am on that. You're at Dr. Suze Brown, I think. I am, yeah. It's been a pleasure. We finally did it. Well done. Yeah, yes. We'll do a part two at some point. <clears throat> Thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, send my best to Dan and Bo and wish Bo well in his Sunday morning football with Uncle Mike. Well, it may not be football. It may be a range. It may be gymnastics. Who knows? <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Suzanne, and we'll catch up soon. Yeah, you too.